today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, and don't forget to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Prime Minister shuffles his cabinet. Also, his former right-hand man, Gerald Butts, wants a rebuttal. And the Momo challenge is fake? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. The Prime Minister has shuffled his cabinet again after the resignation of Jody Wilson-Raybould from Veterans Affair. To give us an up-to-date on what has happened, Amanda Connolly is with us, national online journalist, Global News, and she is with us now. Amanda, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. So what is, this is pretty, um, there's not a lot going on here. It's pretty much an internal shuffle, is it not? I think that's a, that's a fair way to characterize this. What struck me about it is it, it seems like a fairly safe shuffle. There really aren't any surprises here, no big promotions or big demotions. It really is a lot of lateral moves within the cabinet, which I think to me speaks to the fact that they perhaps did not want to be bringing in new faces, untested faces into these portfolios six months ahead of an election, and particularly with what's happening right now with the SNC-Lavalin affair. Uh, does it have to be done now? Why now, do you think, as in today? I think today, because, of course, this is the last day before the MPs head back into their constituencies for two weeks. This really is the end of this this kind of round of the parliamentary sitting right now. And, of course, they they have had this hole in their cabinet for about three weeks now since uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould resigned on February 12th. Getting that filled and being able to kind of move forward with a certain amount of, I think, clarity and, and, again, certainty moving forward here as they head into the final home stretch of this sitting before the end of the session in uh, in June is something that they're really going to want to have mailed down as they, again, the MPs are heading home here. They're going to be kind of hitting a lot of the pre-election type behavior here, talking to people, hearing their concerns, and taking that back to Ottawa as well. So making sure they have a clear, cohesive ability to do that and, and the certainty to know who's going to handle certain files I think is really important. Uh, what about outside response to this shuffle from the, uh, from, uh, the opposition or even internally? I think, you know, what, what we're likely to see from this here, of course, is uh, may perhaps be focused on the fact that we now have the the first female agriculture minister in that role, Marie-Claude Bibeau, uh, who has moved over from Minister of International Development into Agriculture Minister. Her move to me was the most interesting thing out of this, this shuffle. She, of course, represents a riding in Quebec that is predominantly rural. It's home to a lot of dairy farmers in the province as well. And we know that the issue of market share for dairy farmers is a really big issue right now that uh, the, the Conservatives have been criticizing the government for giving up too much space in the recent uh, the new USMCA or new NAFTA deal, as well as the CPTPP deal with the Asian, with a number of Asian countries as well. That's a big issue, and it will be a big issue heading into the election. So seeing her, uh, a Francophone MP, moved in there, or an MP who, whose home base is in these writings, I think will be very interesting to see how the Liberals and the Conservatives position that given the broader concerns over over the market share issue. So uh, a time for a strategic move as well internally. I think so. I think that that's certainly a fair thing to say here. It, it points to the potential priorities or issues where the government, the, liber- the liberals may see they need perhaps to um, reposition themselves or strengthen their approach heading into the election. And this, I think, is certainly a reflection of that. Still no word to this date uh, as to why uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould was removed out of the attorney general position, other than, of course, what the prime minister said about Scott Bryson moving in. And if that hadn't happened, uh, that she would still be there. Does anybody buy that? I think that really is going to be the, the, the big question right now for Canadians, and particularly as MPs head back into their writings now for two weeks. 
you know, I'm, I'm not sure what the reaction on the ground will be to them and to uh, the concerns that are being raised, both in terms of how this has been handled from a political perspective, as well as from the perspective of, I think, a lot of Indigenous communities and uh, even women who on social media have been, uh, certain uh, communities within within those groups have been critical of the government's handling of this because of the way it's been perceived in a way as um, attempts to really attack her credibility, her standing, her uh, capacity to do the job. And I think that those factors have really played into this and are going to be things that the government is forced to address and forced to explain its reasoning for in the coming weeks. Uh, many, many were uh, upset that uh, they pushed back Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony in the day uh, earlier on this week uh, just so they could avoid question period. And then, of course, the impending two weeks off uh, after that, obviously, the prime minister doesn't have to, to answer to any of this in the House. Uh, that being said, as you mentioned, they may very well get an earful when they go out and about in the next two weeks. Yeah, that's very much true, and I think the fact that it's well, a good way having, to gauge what's going on, really, when you think it, about it. It is. It is. I think that we're and both our, you know, ourselves as reporters and MPs as well are going to come back from from the, these coming break weeks here with perhaps a a clearer sense of what the feeling outside the Ottawa bubble is. This is a story that really has started off inside the bubble and seems to have permeated and pierced out of that. Uh, and so figuring out, again, kind of what the, the feeling is among Canadians, particularly as we hear more information next week from Gerald Butts on Wednesday. He's one of three witnesses who are slated to appear to talk more about this and give perhaps more evidence, more explanation for what was happening behind the scenes on this. And we may see them, I think, uh, contradict different aspects of Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony that could put this issue again into the headlines again and keep it very much front and centre for Canadians. Yeah, you have to wonder about this strategy pushing this into the next week by by uh, getting Gerald Butts up there. What is the response? Uh, what's the buzz now that he is going to? He certainly has been a figure that the opposition has been calling to appear since really day one of this. Yeah. He is the Prime Minister's former right-hand man, still remains a very close friend of of uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And we know that Trudeau spoke with him last Wednesday after he had resigned as well. He told us that yesterday in a press conference that he had reached out to Butts as a friend to see how he was doing. We don't know what happened in that conversation. We don't know what was said. But the fact that Butts has now volunteered to come before this committee and they have accepted that uh, with him saying he wants to bring some some of his own evidence and his own uh, version of, of events to, to the committee and to Canadians here will be very, very interesting to see what he can reveal and what he's free to say again. The government has waived solicitor client privilege, waived cabinet confidentiality here. And I think that perhaps could set a tone for what we're going to hear in terms of maybe more open, uh, open sharing of information about this from the three witnesses who are set to appear without those restrictions. It'll be interesting to see what tactic uh, Butts takes. I mean, whether he'll he'll uh, resume the position of the of the prime minister, and that being, uh, I totally disagree with everything that they say. And if it goes back and forth like that, how the public is going to perceive that, and who are they going to believe? Basically, Jody Wilson-Raybould or the prime minister's office. I think what we can likely safely say is that it would be very, very surprising if Butts' testimony differed in any kind of significant way from what Trudeau and the government have been putting forward so far. Again, remember, this is a very, very senior person within the government. He is someone who is has been described as being in a lot of these meetings that were taking place that Wilson-Raybould and her staff felt were problematic. And again, he he is very, extremely close to the Prime Minister, and to see any kind of major difference between their positions would certainly be very striking. So this is basically doubling down on, uh, on well, we're assuming this, doubling down on what the Prime Minister said. How do you think that's going to resonate? 
after I hearing that, her? Because her, her testimony was incredibly compelling. How do you top that? You know, I think that what's, what was most, again, compelling and striking about her testimony was the level of detail yeah. that went into it, the, the, the clear-headed, thorough um, way that she laid out the chronology of this and then backed it up with uh, clear descriptions of notes, of text exchanges, of things that are, are really the first kind of clear details that we've been getting in many cases about this matter. I think that to be able to counter that in any significant way, Butts and the and the, the other witnesses who are coming up next week are really going to have to do the same to shore up their side of the story. It's not enough at this point, I think, for Canadians to not have that level of, of clarity that we saw from her. If you're going to counter the argument, you have to do it with facts and with evidence and lay that case forward for Canadians to judge. And also, as well as Butts' uh, testi- uh, testimony next week, also uh, the clerk to the Privy Council, correct? Correct, yeah. Michael Wernick will be there, as well as Natalie Druen. She's the Deputy Attorney General in this uh, and, and also has been involved in this case um, from the, the civil servant side of things, from within the bureaucracy. So we will be hearing from those two as well. Michael Wernick will be a big one to watch because his testimony uh, brought him under a lot of criticism. I think it's fair to say he was perceived by many as being too partisan, too supportive of the government's positioning and their description of events. And then, of course, Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony, again, really contradicted a lot of what Michael Warnick had said. So seeing him come back up here without the constraints of cabinet confidentiality, for example, will be very, very interesting and one that, that I think everybody is going to be watching extremely closely. It seems like the facts are the facts at this point, unless Butts presents something completely different to contradict what Jody Raybould Wilson has said. Do you think this is going to come down to a definition of pressure? I mean, you know, Butts saying, yeah, we did this, but we do this all the time. I mean, this is consultation. This is what, you know, this is, this is how we negotiate these sorts of things. Uh, that being said, unless somebody's in the room, how do you, how do you pick a winner? there? You know, that really is the underlying question in all of this is what actually happened and, and where is the line? I think that what we've been seeing from the government so far is is uh, an argument that perhaps the line is maybe not as clear as Jody Wilson-Raybould has laid it out to be in her interpretation of it. And again, the difficulty with that is that you, you have one side that is putting forward um, evidence and, and laying forward detailed fact-based accounts and one that's saying more or less, trust me. That's going to be, I think, a difficult argument to to make to Canadians. And you're going to, again, you're, you're really going to have to lay that out on, on a more equal footing to try and, and, and alleviate some of the concerns that are that are very much remaining and only escalating about this case. Uh, do you think in the end somehow the Attorney General's office will be separated uh, from politics and from political inter- interference? Are, are we heading in that direction? You know, I think it's it's... It's very early days to say at this point. We did see from Jody Wilson-Raybould in her testimony to committee that she suggested the committee perhaps might want to examine that question. We know in other countries, like the UK, for example, the US, the position is not a cabinet position. It is removed from the the political considerations going on within the cabinet. And there are, there have certainly been a vigorous debate among legal scholars online and in and, and various uh, different forums over, over the last couple of weeks here about whether removing that position from cabinet could help to alleviate some of the concerns around pressure that this case has really brought forward. I'm not, I'm not sure that we would see that or have time to see that actually play out before the election here. The government has until June before things pretty much wrap up for them. Uh, that could certainly be a very big change to make in a very short amount of time. 
How do you think this is playing out for for uh, the average Canadian? Uh, is this too deep into the woods politically? Uh, is this is this hitting the the dinner table? I think that there are a lot of the, the things that will likely permeate from this from Canadians and that seems to be permeating are concerns around how a lot of the optics are playing out. Again, we're seeing concerns from from certain communities like Indigenous groups, like women, who feel that the the way that Jody Wilson-Raybould has been described by um, sources from within government who've been speaking in media reports, for example, has been sexist, has been racist. We saw the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, for example, coming out and demanding that Trudeau actually condemn those statements that were being made by people from within his government anonymously to this. And I think that that's resonating. This is a government that, that has built up a brand around being feminist, around reconciliation. And these issues, I think, strike to the heart of that brand and will be very important ones the government needs to address if it wants to to continue to have the support that it has had so far. All right, last question. What's the Prime Minister doing during these two weeks? This is really going to be, a, again, it's going to be kind of a whirlwind two weeks of traveling across the country, meeting with Canadians, uh, going out into constituencies. Of course, uh, Justin Trudeau is an MP from Quebec. He represents the running for Papineau. And I would expect that we're going to see him both, again, back there, traveling around, doing various announcements um, of the government here. And, and again, during all of that, he will be facing questions about this until there is a, a more clear resolution. Uh, we know how the West feels about all of this. Is the country divided on this? I mean, is, is, is Quebec on one page and the West on another? You know, I'm not even sure if it's if it's so much Quebec versus the West as Quebec versus the rest. And right. what we're seeing here, I think, obviously, there is a very, uh, very strong attachment in Quebec to companies like SNC-Lavalin. These are kind of corporate jewels that have risen to be able to compete and succeed on the global stage. And, and there's real pride in that, I think. And there's a real um, wish to keep those jobs protected. The rest of the country, it seems, is, is, again, concerned about how this is being handled, particularly given job losses in the oil sands, uh, job losses facing the workers in Oshawa, the GM plant, and, and more broadly like that, the extent uh, to which um, the government perhaps is looking to protect these jobs versus other ones, I think is an issue that will resonate and prompt Canadians to really shape their understanding of this issue. Amanda Connolly has been with us, National Online Journalist for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6. Amanda, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Gerald Butts going to be appearing before the House of Commons Justice Committee in regards to the SNC-Lavalin case. Michael is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Are you surprised that he's going to testify? Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised he's going to testify in the sense that he got pretty badly attacked during uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony. I think what is interesting is, um, especially when you actually look at the letter that he wrote, which was very quick, very terse, and basically just said that he wanted in, it almost looked like it had been ready for a while, that he was almost expecting something to come of it, based on one assumes maybe the closed-door meeting that Jody Wilson-Raybould had after everything had come out and after they had basically said they didn't want to deal with her for a bit, but then we're trying to make nice, and they brought her into a meeting. So I wonder if some of that is all tied in together. But it's a suspicion at this point. The fact is that even whether people feel it's surprising or not, he's definitely going to speak out. It'll probably happen within the next couple, you know, week or two. 
And he'll, he's obviously going to a lawyer, as he's directly said, to sort of make sure that he has his story straight and his facts straight and probably can figure out what he can or cannot say at the Justice Committee. And it's going to be interesting. And he and two others will be speaking as well, which means that this story is going to go on who knows how long, certainly for a few more weeks anyway. So will this help or hurt the Liberals? I guess that depends on what he says. But uh, yeah. do, you, do you think uh, this is going to fly? Yeah, I mean, you, you've caught, you basically hit the nail on the head. It, there's a lot of people dis- debating it back and forth as to whether it's beneficial or not. Usually with controversial stories like this one, you want to try to get rid of it as fast as possible. You don't want to have it linger because you never know what someone could say, how many more people come out of the woodwork and start discussing issues. And it also gives, say, for example, the House of Commons Justice Committee and others more time to call more witnesses, which means it'll last a longer period of time as well. But on the other hand, I would guess from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's personal view, and I mean, again, I can't speak for him, and I'm just sort of thinking along these lines, because Gerald Butt has been a university friend, was his closest advisor, and served as his principal secretary, which is basically the equivalent of a chief chief of staff, I think that he probably would see Butts' testimony as being beneficial to his cause, because this is obviously someone he knows and trusts. I think when you start moving away from him to, well, Jody Wilson-Raybould named almost a dozen people. I think there were 11 in total. We've only heard from her, so there's obviously lots of other people they can bring forward. I would think that Trudeau would probably see anything that Gerald Butts brings forward as being beneficial I don't know how he would look upon everybody else who speaks, even if they're loyalists and even if they serve him as being, well, as, as people that he sort of needs on his side to ensure that the story dies, because the story isn't going to die anytime soon. So we know how the prime minister uh, feels about this. I mean, we heard his response to Jody Wilson-Raybould's uh, yeah. testimony, basically that, that he doesn't agree with it. Uh, will doubling down on the prime minister's uh, position, will that work? Will that fly? <laughs> well, you know, again, these are hard things to speculate on. But, no, I think whenever you double down on a controversy like this, it doesn't benefit you. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the typical way to look at it. And you have to sort of think about it, take it from a personal sense as well. If something is bothering you or something is affecting you, when people double down or triple down on it, how is that really going to help you get out of it in the grand scheme of things? Usually, as I said, the best thing is for the controversy to come out parse it, you know, debate it, discuss it, let it go through its course, and then get rid of it. When more and more people are attracted to the scenario or are brought into the scenario, well, then it gets harder and harder for it to go away. And quite frankly, I don't think this testimony, that being Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony, was going to go away anytime soon. I'm not surprised that it's lasted now close to three weeks. I wouldn't be surprised if it lasted a couple months or longer. I wouldn't even be surprised if we're still talking about it maybe a bit more loosely, for the rest of this time until we actually have the federal election in the fall. It's a very, very powerful um, controversy. It's a huge controversy in the sense that, if you remember, and you go back to your history, ad scam, which was basically mm. the thing that did in the Liberal Party for about 10 years, brought down Prime Minister, then Prime Minister Paul Martin and brought in, well, my old friend and boss, Stephen Harper, which is why I and others went to Ottawa to work for him. 
So to say that, you know, that this testimony by Joni Wilson-Raybould is going to have its say, go on for a week or two, and then die, it's very, very unlikely. And it also sort of comes into play because now at some point, or at least probably within the next one to three weeks, Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, has to make a decision whether he even wants to keep Jody Wilson-Raybould in his party caucus because of the way she spoke out her version of the truth, which, as you said, she com- he completely disagrees with. And quite frankly, Gerald Butts and others are going to come there and basically going to slam her. They're going to throw her under the bus and roll the wheels as many times as they possibly can <laughs> to try and get rid of her. Yeah, I'm having a hard time. Try- I'm having a hard time trying to think about what Butts is going to sell that we haven't already heard. Uh, the facts on both sides seem similar. It seems about this is all about interpretation of pressure. In other yep. words, on one side, well, this goes on all the time. What's the problem? You know, she couldn't take it. Blah blah blah. And 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 her calling it undue. I mean. Is that what it's going to come down to, is uh, different views of the exact same event? It may very well. I mean, a, a he said, she said, or she said, she said, depending on how many people come in type of scenario, is going to sort of drop down to that. It'll be a matter of interpretation. And moreover, it'll be the interpretation that people have of Jody Wilson-Raybould's initial testimony and whether they believe it or not. I mean, again... All I can use is my own personal experience. I worked in a prime minister's office, you know, and I served it faithfully. I can tell you that that sort of pressure, undue pressure, did not exist. And certainly, when Jody Wilson-Raybould says that it was pressure not once but on multiple occasions, as she clearly said no over and over again, that she was disinterested in going this route and she was the final say, which is true as the attorney general, that really is accurate, then the matter should have been over the first time and maybe even the second time. But certainly the fact that she said it went on a multiple times, and I forget how many there were. I mean, you're talking maybe five, six, seven times in general. That's just too much. And that's really that, you know, that's interference on a level we just don't hear about in prime minister's office. And as well, her suggestion that there were veiled threats against her, which were obviously related to job security. You know, these are just things that, Yeah, Gerald Butts will come in and produce his own version of the truth or his own story and will obviously contradict a lot of what Jody Wilson-Raybould said. We know that. But at the same time, is he believable and is he credible if, one, Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony, which was including with, you know, included meticulous notes with names, dates, discussions, times, meetings, and direct quotes from some of the participants, how can Gerald Butts recreate a scenario like that unless he did the same thing? And quite frankly, most of us don't do it that way. The reason Wilson-Raybould does is because she's a former Crown prosecutor. Mm. They take copious amounts of notes. Most of us who work in politics, we take some, but nothing quite like that. So I don't see, he will certainly contradict her, but how it's going to stand up, and if nothing else, how it will stand up to the general populace of the Canadian people remains to be seen. Especially after we have seen her performance. But that being said, a smart guy here, he's not going to walk in there knowing what, uh, without knowing what he's up against. He sure. knows he has to outperform her in some way. Yeah, but that's going to be very hard to do. I'm not saying that he's going to go in there and he's going to be a blithering idiot. Of course he's not. He's obviously going to be prepared. He will speak to his legal advisor or legal advisors. I don't know how many he has. And he will craft 
an opening statement and be able to respond to questions as best he can. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it's going to be quite as uh, meticulous or as articulate as Jody Wilson-Raybould's performance was, because I don't think most of us would be sort of that prepared. No matter how intelligent we are, how capable we are, and how yeah. good we are at our job, people just don't necessarily do this. Yes, they reflect back and they think about conversations, and they can paraphrase certainly conversations that they may have had, like, uh, for example, what Wilson-Raybould went through, but to actually have, at least in her version of the story, mind you, direct quotes from people in terms of what they said and how they may have tried to intimidate her, pressure her, pressure her interfere in the process. He, obviously, Gerald Butts will come up and he'll produce, uh, he'll, or at least he'll attempt to produce a sparkling testimony, but it's just not going to be able to match up because no one could match up quite against that. There's just so much there that Jody Wilson-Raybould presented. It's very hard to sort of punch holes in the wall and try to show that a lot of it's wrong, other than it's her interpretation of the truth, so to speak. Uh, Two key targets here. We've talked about this before for the Liberals, that being uh, females and the Indigenous community. Is this solution that they are trying to craft to this mess in the Prime Minister's office, is it targeting them or is it more focused on just, is it more focused on targeting Jody Wilson-Raybould? I think it's more focused on targeting her, to be quite frank. I I know that the angles of her being female and from the Indigenous community is obviously being played into the whole narrative. And certainly, you know, what her background is and what her gender is, is obviously of some relevance. No one's denying that. But to state directly that it's a, a firm target, no, I don't think so. I think the issue they really have with her primarily is basically her version of the story and her version of the truth. The fact of what she is, what she represents, what she stands for, and how she was born and how she was born as, I don't think are necessarily all that relevant. But there's no question of this. Even if that's not part of the liberal PMO strategy, the fact that she is female and that she is Indigenous works heavily against them because these are two groups they've tried to work hard to solidify support from, especially our prime minister who claims to be this self-described feminist but has been caught in so many things from the kokanee grope to this that clearly that's not going to hold water anymore, and the fact that he's, he's always touted his success on, with Aboriginal communities and the Indigenous community in terms of improving relations with Native Canadians That's fine for him to say, and he can keep saying it, but one, most Native Canadian leaders don't seem to agree, and the irony is, two, he had the first Native Canadian, or Indigenous, or Aboriginal, whatever term you wish to use, Attorney General. That's where he may have made his greatest gains, and now she's gone. So those gains could be lost very quickly. And does this all not come back uh, to Michael, to, to, to the question, why did he remove her in the first place from the role of, a, of Attorney General? I mean, uh, th- there's the answer to your question, is it not? Yeah, well, there it is. And unfortunately, I don't know if we're ever going to get that, yeah. Scott. Because, um, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say the Prime Minister is restricting that train of thought and those speeches and those meetings from coming to play. And until they're not redacted, so to speak, we're never going to know. Is anybody? I can't believe he keeps trying to sell the the situation that uh, this was all because of Scott Bryson, uh, <laughs> tra- you know, being uh, leaving uh, 
the cabinet, and that's why there yeah. had to be a shuffle. I mean, that explains what happened to Scott, but that doesn't explain what happened to Jody. No, and it's complete and utter nonsense. Does that not and make anybody, him just look bad? I mean, even Joe, Joe Public's got to figure that one out. You would hope so, and honestly, I would really be surprised if liberals are still coming on. And again, I'm not obviously monitoring every radio TV station. I'm not monitoring every newspaper magazine. I would be stunned if they're still coming on and saying that. In fact, the person who's been saying it the loudest has been the prime minister, who keeps making the point that, well, if Scott Bryson hadn't decided to retire, Jody Wilson-Raybould would still be the attorney general and minister of justice and blah, blah, blah. The answer is very simple. He didn't have to target her. It doesn't matter if Scott Bryson stepped down. He had a whole cabinet full of people that he could have shuffled out. He has a whole group of backbenchers he could have shuffled in. He chose to target her, and that's why her story is so strong. How much pressure is on Gerald Butts? Not as much as before, and the rationale is very simple. He's actually not the principal secretary any longer because he stepped down. There have been things, and I'm I'm sure you've probably read about them or discussed them, maybe you've even talked about them on the air, where there's now some suggestion, it's just sort of motoring around, so I'm not going to give it validity at this point, that Gerald Butts will still be involved somehow with the Liberal Party and the Liberal campaign, that his his ear to the Prime Minister has not necessarily been blocked up quite yet. And that wouldn't surprise me if he obviously still had some sort of a role. It would be interesting if it turned into a paying role, and I guess we'll find out whether that happens or not. But in terms of Butts himself, because there's now distance between him and the Prime Minister's office, he's now actually free to speak as he so fits or as he so sees. He's not restricted by certain things. Uh, he would have been restricted, for, for example, with an equivalent of cabinet confidentiality, even though technically he wasn't part of the cabinet. But now that he's just a, a basically a free citizen, like you and I and most of the listeners, he actually can say what he wants. So it's a question of what his legal advisors <clears throat> basically say you can or cannot say. Or what sort of risk you could take if you say present these five names but not these three there's something to that effect uh, we, again we have to see what he says that's the whole problem this was positioned as he requested to speak uh yeah. is that the case or would they have asked him anyway i that's a good question i mean yes he did request to speak so we'll take him at that at his word i believe he probably did He was probably so furious that she came out and said what she said, that he wanted to speak. But again, as I said at the top, the statement that he sent out, as small as it was, looks like it had been crafted beforehand that I think he was almost prepared to speak at some point. So I think he just knew this was coming. This could also obviously explain why he left the prime minister's office with his sudden resignation on all days of family day and just sort of, you know, basically left and hightailed it at least from the Prime Minister's office, but not obviously from Ottawa. So it would make a lot of sense. But on the other hand, who knows? Uh, maybe he was just so irritated that he just wrote up something very, very quickly and sent it out. Because it looked like it, would, it had been not necessarily structured, not necessarily thought about too much, but a very rushed, short statement to ensure that he made it known that he wanted to speak. But whether he knew beforehand or not, I'd be surprised if he didn't expect something was coming down the pipe, because, quite frankly, that would explain why he left so suddenly. But then again, as we've seen in Ottawa and we've seen elsewhere in the world, 
Politics is not very easy to understand sometimes. Uh, so, uh, again, we don't know what's going to happen until he speaks, but assuming he doubles down on what the Prime Minister has said, sure. how do you settle this? Who do you believe? Is this, will in the end, will this be up to the public to decide who they believe, the Prime Minister's office or Jody Wilson-Raybould? Yeah, it's completely up to the public, and the public actually can decide with their vote in the fall. That's one way they can do it. If you are disgusted by what you see and you believe that, Justin Trudeau in the Prime Minister's office did try to intervene or pressure a former cabinet minister, senior cabinet minister at that, on multiple occasions to get involved in the criminal proceedings of NSC Lavlin, a Montreal-based construction company, who has had their own long and sordid history with criminal proceedings and other stuff, including, as we've discovered, and it's still kind of hard to say this, and I'm actually going to be writing it soon, you know, buying hookers from Walmart yeah. and Coffee Sun. Wow. I mean, and it's true. That's what's the scary part about this. When I first heard it, I don't know about you, yeah. it's insane. It can't yeah. be accurate. Yeah. Well, guess what? It is. And that's what makes this so shocking. So I think it's really up to the general populace, and they're going to have to make a decision whether they believe that or whether they think that Jody Wilson-Raybould <clears throat> was furious about the fact that she was shuffled out of cabinet and put into a lower post, and she's just trying to basically protect her own good name or what's left of it. That's really up for people to make that decision. But based on her testimony right now, she is way, way ahead in terms of the narrative from where Justin Trudeau and the Prime Minister's office are. And whether Gerald Butts and others can reel it back in remains to be seen. Uh, Gerald Butts going to testify next week. We also hear the Clerk of the Privy Council also called back and the Deputy Attorney General. Who else do you think will testify? Anybody else as big as Butts? Uh, Well, I mean, let's put it this way. She named 11 people in total. You take these three off, there are eight left. I would say probably the biggest name that's left in there who hasn't testified yet would be Katie Telford, who basically now is the most senior person around Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, and has his ear for a lot of different things. And she may be brought in for a completely different reason, which would be her comment that if Jody Wilson-Raybould played ball, so to speak, with the Liberal government, they would issue a whole series of commentary pieces and op-eds in favor of her decision. That is just shocking, isn't it? Well, I guess it's not shocking from your perspective, but it is for the rest of us. No? No, no, no. Op-eds, yes. They don't get set like that. Now, letters to the editor, there's lots of different campaigns. I think I even acknowledge that to you. And I know they've existed. I've seen them happen. But again, those are unpaid for. Those are basically just campaign supporters who follow a campaign and throw out 150 to 200 words at best. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But those are harmless because letters to the editor, people peruse, but they don't take necessarily as fact. When you write a commentary piece or an op-ed or say if she was thinking about trying to deal with newspapers, newspaper editorials, who knows what she, what she was considering, that would have been awful because that breaks the barrier between politics and the media in such a way that it's, it's just yeah. so irritating and so preposterous. And to just find, put a final point on it, I've worked for a lot of papers for a long time, Scott. That has never, ever happened. And if she thinks that she could have done it, she has another thing coming. Unbelievable. Michael Tobis with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thanks for your time. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
You know, you hear so much about the internet. You hear so much about things that are, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of bad. It's self-policing. We have to be aware of what our kids are watching, what our kids are taking in and uh, participating in. There's been a lot of discussion on Facebook about the Momo Challenge. Uh, allegedly, there are videos that start out as normal cartoons, and then the figure face appears and urges kids to self-harm. Now there's questions whether this is real, this is a hoax, or or what the heck it is. Uh, and, and again, it's one of those things that once it catches fire, it just spreads across the Internet, and many are questioning whether the legend of it is, um, is greater than the actual... Uh, I, I guess, offense itself. Uh, let's bring in Jane Litvinenko. Uh, she is from BuzzFeed and has penned an article, We Don't Know If the Momo Challenge is Real, and That's the Problem. As stories about the challenge go viral, we, we never know the scale of the phenomenon who is uh, or who is behind it. And this is uh, penned by Jan, uh, Jane Litvinenko, who is with BuzzFeed and on the line with us now. Jane, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Thank you for uh, talking about that. So is it the Momo or Momo? Momo. It is Momo. I guess. Uh, let's go with that. Uh, what do we know about it? How did this start? And, and the fact that it, is it real, fake? What's this discussion? Right. So there's a few different versions of what the Momo challenge would entail. And before I get into it, I just want to preface with the fact that uh, very few people seem to have seen any of this in the wild, and so the panic around it is seems a bit misplaced. But the first version is that it's, you know, a children's show like, say, Peppa Pig or Fortnite or whatever else the kids are watching, My Little Pony sometimes. Um, it just starts out as a regular episode on YouTube, and then spliced in would be just a creepy character with a very creepy music, sort of doing a slow zoom and scaring children. Sometimes it's just something like, you know, Momo will kill you. Other times it's encouraging self-harm. Um, now, there, are, there, there have been some talk about whether uh, this character also encourages kids to continue the conversation with the character on a messaging program uh, like WhatsApp, but we haven't really seen any evidence of that. And the spliced videos themselves have been very few and far between and extremely difficult to come by. So what we really don't know is how much of this is real and whether the videos that we have seen were inspired by the media coverage or if the media coverage was inspired by the videos. Uh, it, it doesn't appear that many are coming through or, or that we're hearing from many that have had direct contact in any way with this. Right. So um, there are some parents who say their children have seen the character itself. And mm -hmm. uh, for those who haven't seen it, it's, it's sort of a distorted face of a woman with this uh, grin from one end to another end mm -hmm. and eyes that are sort of almost about to come out of her face. Um, with dark hair draping the, the, the entire head. Yeah, it's a pretty um, creepy picture. It's a creepy picture. And so what some parents have been saying is that, yes, my kids do know what it is, and they are a little scared of her. But it's unclear whether, you know, the kids saw it in videos on YouTube or if it's really just a character that they've seen around the Internet that gives them the creeps. 
So uh, how did this become the story that it has become if there's very few actual cases of contact with this? You know, this is sort of the perfect case study of how disinformation goes viral on the Internet and how difficult it can be to trace its source. So this is a great example of uh, kids being faced with this. But, of course, we've seen our online environment being distorted over the last couple of years in all kinds of contexts, including political contexts. And so what we know is that local news outlets in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, uh, wrote up a couple of quick stories about a mom uh, who chose to remain anonymous, whose child came back from school with a really unsettling drawing of a noose. Uh, and the child said that it was this character, Momo, that told, uh, that, that essentially encouraged this. Um, from there, national outlets in the UK began picking up on the story because it sort of seems compelling and creepy. And then, of course, it went international. Uh, people started making Facebook posts of their own that have gotten, you know, a quarter of a million shares, half of a million shares quite easily. So this is a pretty big scale for something like this. But the difficulty is that most outlets haven't actually confirmed whether these videos existed and what was real. Now, YouTube is telling us that they, it hasn't seen any evidence of this on YouTube Kids and that any videos on the main app are really just educational, so telling people what the Momo Challenge is all about, what this viral phenomenon is all about. But, uh, of course, if, as, as content gets removed from websites, from Facebook, from YouTube, wherever, we really have no way to tell whether, you know, a couple of kids saw this creepy video and were freaked out by it or maybe something else was going on. Um, is there any reason to believe this is real? No. Uh, this type of urban hoax has been going around for uh, ages. You know, we saw this with Slenderman maybe years ago now. <laughs> I, can't, I don't want to date myself here, but years ago. And we saw this with something called the Blue Whale Challenge in 2016. And ultimately, uh, you know, there's no evidence that children are harming themselves because of any of these internet challenges. But more, more importantly, uh, experts who research mental health issues say that self-harm rarely happens in isolation. There's usually signs. There's usually, you know, little warnings. Uh, a, a, a kid very rarely will, you know, take a knife to themselves or, or harm themselves in any way just because they saw a character on YouTube. And so if parents are worried, the, the conversation should center around online safety and mental health rather than this specific challenge. Do you think this is just a, a, an urban hoax, an urban legend, an Internet hoax? And, you know, at the end of the day, everyone's just looking for more hits. You know, you include this line in what you're talking about. You're guaranteed that. And then it spreads like wildfire. Is there any reason to believe it's anything other than that? Uh, no, there really isn't. Um, like I said, if, it, if this was something more than that, then it would have been on a very, very small scale, uh, a scale that, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't warrant this international response. 
And I would also say that this type of uh, breathless writing about it, this type of worry, is the perfect example of the dangers of our information environment on the Internet right now. Um, if we're not able to tell the difference between what's true and what's real in YouTube videos or in news stories or in Facebook posts uh, about something like this, then maybe the news that we're reading and how we're informed should also be taken with a little bit of caution. What can we learn from all of this? I think what we can learn from all of this is that um, we worry, we rightfully worry about the way children spend their time on the Internet. And parents really need to evaluate how they allow their kids, especially their young kids, to interact with sort of the open web. So something like YouTube, where there's a lot of adult content, for example. So one recommendation that I received when I wrote my article was that parents just go to uh, websites for the particular shows that their children like. So, yeah. for example, watch Sesame Street on the Sesame Street website or, you know, stream from uh, kids' shows from the CBC, for example. And that will sort of help guarantee the safety of what they watch. Just don't let your children watch something that you haven't yourself seen. Uh, there was rumors floating around that this was all part of a scheme to collect data. <laughs> Any truth to that? So that's something that the police in Northern Ireland uh, brought up, but they uh, told me that they haven't seen this play out themselves, and we've seen no evidence of that either. We weren't able to find anything at all on that. So I would say it's pretty safe to say that it's not a scheme to collect data. Where does this? Where is this going? Where, where is this now? Is it gaining in popularity? Is it gaining legs or is it dying down? It was gaining legs for a good while yesterday and the day before. And this was also viral in 2018. Right now we're at the point where this is dying down and people are very skeptical about it. People are having very productive conversations about how they should behave on the internet, how their kids should behave on the internet. But I would also warn that something like this, or even this specific thing, could return just by nature of the internet itself. So perhaps listening to this and, and, and being part of this discussion will help us uh, ward off something like this happening in the future. Is this a discussion about the kids, or is this a discussion about parents observing their kids? Well, I think it's both, right? <laughs> I don't know if you can take the, the parent out of the kid. Um, but I think that what it ultimately tells us is that we are raising one of the first generations that's going to be exclusively on the Internet. They won't remember a world before there was Internet on it. And that poses a lot of challenges for parents and for kids themselves. So maybe this is an issue that's to be taken seriously and be given a lot of thought. Uh, what message do you have for parents on this? Uh, what would you say to them if they inquired after, after you writing your article on this? I would just say, you know, this is a great opportunity and a great teaching moment for kids. This would be the perfect time to sit your kid down and, and just tell them that sometimes things on the internet might not be what they seem. And if maybe their kid is feeling a little bit of anxiety over this, then it's the good reason to talk this out. Uh, this could be turned into a very positive teaching moment for both kids and parents. And I think that would be the best possible outcome of this entire 
uh, whirlwind of, of of misinformation that we've seen. Jane Litvinenko has been with us, reporter for BuzzFeed News. The article in BuzzFeed, we don't know if the Momo challenge is real, and that's the problem. Jane, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast, or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.